Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash gabfest. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for March 27th, 2014, the Is Hillary Clinton Too Old to be President edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. I've been abandoned this week by my endlessly vacationing GapFest colleagues. Emily Bazelon is off on some remote continent. John Dickerson, I don't even know where he is. He's probably secretly getting uh, his hair redone or something, um, being rebronzed, dipped in bronzed again. But who needs Dickerson and Bazelon when you have guests like these? Joining me from Slate's New York studio is Slate Group chairman, i.e. my boss, Jacob Weisberg. Hello, Jacob. Hey, David. And at Jacob's side is new to the GabFest, a very special guest, the New York Times op-ed columnist, Gail Collins. Hi, Gail. Hey. Welcome to the GabFest. I'm struck, Gail, uh, before we get started, just that you you appear to me to be the island of sanity on the uh, New York Times op-ed page. Not, not necessarily in what you write, just everyone else appears to be just histrionic and going through some kind of mental crisis or psychological difficulty all the time, whereas you you do not seem that way. You do not seem to be in mental or emotional turmoil. Do you get well, some kind nice. of therapy? I'm not in emotional turmoil, but I have to say that most of my colleagues, when I see them around, they look pretty cool, too, pretty calm and collected. Really? Uh, they all work really hard, though. Maybe that's When Krugman, it. you see Krugman around, he's like, there's no flyaway hair there? No, he's very, he's very, you know, and he's the easiest going guy, you know, from, from my perspective of the world. Trust me on that one. Wow. That is so David, surprising. I think you're onto something. I've known Gail a long time, and conspicuous sanity is one of our hallmarks. <laughs> People remark on it all the time. Okay, I'm bringing yeah. that home tonight. I swear. I, I, I've always thought there's something about writing a column that must strip strip you to the bone, like to have to do that week after week, and you appear not to have been stripped to the bone. Normally, it's fun. I really do like doing it, but I must admit there are periods in the year, and this would be one of them where. It's harder, you know. There's just sort of nothing that's not tragic going on in the world, and I'm, I yearn for the summer and the politics and people being crazy. Or something will happen in that vein. I have trust. I have trust. Today, maybe on the show, we will create some vein for you to uh, tap for the rest of the year. So, on this week's show, we're going to talk about the Hobby Lobby case about whether a private corporation must cover all forms of contraception as required by Obamacare, or can they weasel out of it and what the Supreme Court has to say about that. Then we're going to talk about whether – Gail had a great column this week about Gloria Steinem's 80th birthday, and there's been much discussion of Hillary Clinton's age as she prepares for a possible run for the presidency. Is Hillary too old? Can you be too old to be president? We'll talk about that, and we will talk about the very funny 
not quite spat, something that's going on between Nate Silver and the Democrats who've always loved him now that Nate Silver is predicting very poor Democratic performance in the November election. So have Democrats turned on Nate Silver? And we will have cocktail chatter. Of course, before we start the show, I have a great announcement on April 23rd, as I previously hinted at last week. On April 23rd at Schultz Beer Garden in Austin, Texas, we are going to do a live show, not just any live show. We're going to do a, a live GabFest, but we're also going to team up in the second half of the show with the Texas Tribune's Tribcast, and we're going to do a joint show with them for the second half of the show. It's going to be really, really fun show. The venue looks awesome. There's going to be a pre-show cocktail party. It's a beer garden, so maybe it will be pre-show beers. We're really looking forward to our first Texas show. That will be April 23rd. You can find out more about it. Get tickets to the show, to the cocktail party at uh, slate.com slash Austin. That's slate.com slash Austin. The Supreme Court heard arguments in the Hobby Lobby case on Tuesday, the lawsuit brought by a privately held company with a ton of employees demanding to be relieved of parts of the Obamacare contraceptive mandate on the grounds that providing certain forms of contraception violates the owner's religious beliefs. The strong signs from the courtroom, at least according to Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent, were that Hobby Lobby is probably going to win, perhaps narrow in a narrowly drawn decision, but it looks like they're going to win. It has raised, this case raised several fascinating issues about whether corporations get to have religious beliefs, whether these particular forms of contraception are different and should we consider them a form of abortion rather than contraception, and whether we've opened in some kind of enormous box for people to get out of all sorts of government mandates if we allow Hobby Lobby this exception. Gail, one premise of this case is that Hobby Lobby, a privately held corporation, but a huge corporation, but owned by a family, is entitled to have religious beliefs. Does this make sense to you? Well, I've never thought of any corporation that I know as having religious beliefs of one sort or another. You know, this whole thing, if I can just bounce a little bit off. It, it, the, the argument here basically, I think, is that the Hobby Lobby would like to be treated like the religious nonprofits, which get special exemptions under the, the, under the law, that they're treated a special way. Their employees still get contraceptive coverage, but they're not involved in it. And if only these corporations could be used in the same way, yada, yada, yada. Someone sent me a thing this week from um, a Midwestern city in which the parochial school system, the diocesan school system, had a new list of reasons you can fire people who are teachers, which began obviously with the gay marriage stuff. But it went all the way down to if you are discovered to have used in vitro fertilization or if you are discovered to have had an extramarital affair, not even if you've publicized it, but the amount of stuff you can get away with if you're a religious nonprofit is extraordinary. And the idea that you should be treating corporations, for-profit business groups, with those same kind of tender sensibilities is totally terrifying to me. Jay, could you share that terror? Well, I think that is the core issue here. I mean, the, the consequences for Obamacare are insignificant here, right? I mean, this is four out of 21 methods of contraception. And, you know, it's no, it, it's, it's pretty unlikely that anybody's going to be denied access to contraception under Obamacare as a result of the decision in this case. But this larger issue of whether 
corporations, which in the Citizens United case acquired First Amendment speech rights, also have religious expression rights, is it does have huge implications. And my instinct is very much to say, no, they shouldn't. These are rights under our philosophy that underpins our system of government, the Constitution. These are individual rights. And there's no reason to extend them to a construct, a collective construct that for certain reasons we deem to be like an individual uh, for certain legal reasons. It should not have those rights. But I do think, and this is maybe where the, the case will end up, there are certain kinds of corporations that are in fact almost indistinguishable for in, from individuals. I can send a, set up a corporation as a freelance writer, just to make an example, and my corporation is pretty much me. I might hire one other person. Now, you could argue that when I hire one other person, I've lost the level of protection I have when I'm not a company. But I think the people who make the uh, argument for re religious protection here do have, you know, the smaller the company and the more it represents a person or a family, the more ground they have to stand on. Yeah, I can see this all going that way in the end, yeah. some kind of a very narrow what is really a corporation and what is really a family business or something. Although it is, it's slightly tenuous to make a claim that a business that employs 13,000 people across dozens of states is a family business in the way that, you know, the mom and pop store down the corner is a, is a family business. Yeah, I, I, or if one person incorporates themselves. I get, but can I just throw in one thing about the whole, con whether contraceptives are in and of themselves an important part of Obamacare, which obviously in terms of the grand scheme of money, they probably aren't. But the idea, and Dahlia wrote about this, I think, you know, very convinced, the idea that well, it's not a big deal, the whole contraceptive thing. I mean, this is the one thing that has triggered the entire transformation of the way women live in the modern world, the ability to control reproduction. And the idea that this is just some sort of a little side thing on health care, that, that the justices can say, well, this doesn't really count in some way, it's not really serious, it's not like your heart or... God forbid your testicles or something like that. I mean, it's just it's just reproductive services. Right. I mean, this is a big central deal for women's health. And, and Jacob, also to push back on your your point about women not being denied, I don't know this in detail. We're but my, up on you. my my own dear wife has diabetes, and for her particular form of diabetes, the, basically the only form of contraception that is safe and works is an IUD, which is one of the ones that Hobby Lobby claims is an is an abortifacient and therefore will not cover. So if you're a type 1 diabetic who works for Hobby Lobby. Does your health exemption trump their religious exemption? I mean, where, where, does, that, where does that come down? I mean, that's a case where, where her care would be damaged by the fact that this particular form of contraception is not covered. And the other part of that, Gail, is like the weird way in which we are allowing these corporations to define what is an abortifacient. And the, ju the judges, some of them, seem to be going down that same line. I mean, this is, you know, well, it's abortion. You know, we can all, you know, do we have to talk about you know, letting, you know, coverage of abortions here? The idea that a Hobby Lobby can say, well, we're not covering the IUD because it creates abortions when all, you know, the, the sperms and, or the fertilized eggs are being dislodged, when all of science tells you this isn't true, is very strange. And once again, with all this stuff, it gets down to moving beyond actual religious convictions into the imposition of theology, 
which seems to me a very different business. Well, what I, I agree with most of that. I just was making the point that in practical terms, look, there are 21 forms of contraception covered. There could have been 22 or 23 or 15. These are the ones somebody made a decision that those 21 should be covered. That can change over time. The, what the Hobby Lobby, the relief they're asking for, is to only cover 17 of them. And yes, there are you know, some people who would prefer or need the other four. But they're not being denied access to them. They're b- being denied coverage for them potentially. I don't, know, I don't favor that outcome. I'm just saying it makes no material difference to the efficacy of Obamacare overall if some, you know, these issues are going to be coming up constantly in terms of what treatments are covered, what medicines are covered, what should be covered. You guys are both really good historians of politics over the past several generations. And one, one point that was made by Jamel Bowie in a piece for Slate this week was that this obsession around abortion and more recently around contraception is a very new fixation for the American right. It's really only in the past... 35 years that they particularly cared. And in fact, if you look in the 60s and 70s, the evangelical Protestants had no really no real position on abortion at all. It only emerged in the moral majority, Paul Weyrich, Ronald Reagan era of the early 80s when it seemed opportunistic. His point was that it came about when the, the um, evangelical right social right merged politically with the Catholic social right. I can guarantee you as a person who went to Catholic schools that there was no time back then that the Catholic doctrine was not very, very, very intense on not only abortion but on contraception. What fascinates me on that kind of particular historical loop is that when I was a kid, I mean, there were constant, constant, constant speeches in church and in school about the evils of contraception, use of any contraceptions. I could remember one of my relatives telling me about going to, uh, to she had you know, terrible problems with you know poverty and you know her family was falling apart, and she went to confession and confessed that she um, was using a contraceptive. And he said, "You're no better than a whore on the street." The priest said that to her and would not give her, you know, wouldn't forgive her sins. That's all gone now in the Catholic Church. Was the fascinating part of all this is things have gotten more and more hysterical politically. If you go to a, I would bet you a dollar if you went at random to any Catholic parish, the chances that you would find a pastor who was ever doing sermons about the evils of contraception, who was refusing to forgive the sins of any parishioner who said they use birth control, that doesn't happen anymore. It's become a totally don't ask, don't tell kind of issue in the practical life of modern Catholics. But yet at the same time, this incredible social right hysteria has been born on the subject, which is mainly about abortion, but not at all entirely. It's very strongly grounded in opposition to any kind of contraception whatsoever. But when you put it in that framework, which I think is absolutely right, I mean, you think about the distance from Griswold versus Connecticut, which was debating the legality of contraception not 50 years ago, to the point now where there is, you know, pardon the expression, hair splitting about what forms of contraception are going to be paid for by the government. It shows how completely the social right has lost. And I think the hysteria may be in some ways an expression of that, of that desperation. They've, they've lost the war They've lost just about every battle, and that sort of raises the stakes in these few places where they can kind of raise the flag and say, no, we shouldn't have to pay for this thing that we object to. Doesn't the main thing that this case show 
once more is the absolute ludicrousness of having corporations be the vehicle through which people get their health insurance, their health coverage. Yeah, it would be better if we didn't do that, <laughs> I would say personally. And, and there's some argument that that's really the end goal of Obamacare. And if, the, if, the, if Obamacare evolves the way Zeke Emanuel yes, says yes, it will yes, in yes. his new book, the Hobby Lobby case becomes irrelevant because, in fact, they take a look at the situation and they say, well, wait a minute, we're better off financially. And ultimately, it makes more sense for these people to be getting their insurance through the government. Yeah. So, What is so funny about this case is that, is that Hobby Lobby is injecting itself in a place where it has it has literally no business. I mean, you're if you're an employee of a company, I mean, you have a boss and the company, you work for them and they send your paycheck. But why they're interested in what you talk about with your doctor or then how your doctor bills the insurance company, the fact that they could make moral decisions about that is just bizarre. I can't – does any other country do this? It's such a strange way. No other country does right. health care like we do health care, period, end point. I but on this particular question of corporations to being the medium – but in, in fact, as you pointed, they're not acting like a corporation, they're acting like a crazy family because only a crazy <laughs> family would be racking up legal bills to you know, litigate this issue, which has no meaning to their business and, in fact, no larger significance to anybody there. I've never understood quite how we got to this whole thing. I you know, do one more Catholic backgroundy thing, but when the government made their special rules for the nonprofit religious organizations about well we'll, we'll actually pay, you know you won't have to personally pay for it that's structured in a way that theologically should work for catholics there's a very strong you know, rule system about intent and if your intent is to provide health care and you're not directly providing it you can make that work out if you're a bishop, you can really work that out in your head, and it can all be happy, and we can all go home, and there's no problem. But somehow, these elderly, mostly guys who have, are bishops who are running the the, the central church in, in America just you know cannot accept a win, really. They just have to keep going there. All right, last question on this topic for you, Jacob. So is this case ultimately an attack or designed to accomplish something, A, around contraception, B, to weaken Obamacare or C, to create a new standard for how we think about religious exemptions to government mandates, government requests, which is the most important thing for the, for the people who are in favor of Hobby Lobby here. I think that the last one is the big issue here. I mean, there, there was this, this supreme, far-reaching Supreme Court decision in 1990 that said religious exemptions were really frowned upon, right? That was the peyote case where these peyote smoking Indians got fired from their jobs. And Congress was so outraged about the Supreme Court's decision that it passed this law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that said, we want to give them all these rights back. And so that's the question now is whether the Supreme Court's going to go back to its sort of pre-1990 posture, which is, I'm sorry about your religious exemptions. We don't, we're not giving them a lot of credit except in really, really extreme cases. You know, you're, you want to wear yarmulke in the army, no luck. Um, you you think you have a right to smoke peyote, forget about it. Are they going to now go to the opposite extreme where courts end up litigating the question of what's a legitimate religious exempt, exemption, what is valid and genuine religious belief, and carving out a broader territory? And, you know, I agree. I think all of us sort of agree that sort of that drift would be unfortunate, um, partly because we don't really want the courts any more in that business than, than they need to be. But that is what could come out of this case that would be a really big deal. 
The GabFest this week is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible, as you know, is the leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with more than 150,000 titles. They've got books of all sort to listen to, new books, old books, bestsellers, classics, cult favorites. We happen to have, as our two co-hosts today, two huge Audible fans and Jacob uh, Weisberg. Uh, we've been getting listener recommendations for Audible books, but you're you're here on the show. So you're, you're a great Audible listener. What are you listening to that you think other Gabfesters would like to hear? You know, I think the, the ultimate test of um, Audible is uh, literary criticism. I mean, it's easy to get caught up in a novel or, you know, big nonfiction narrative history, but can you listen to essays? And in fact, I've just been listening to the books of essays, and one in particular I'm really enjoying the hell out of, which is a book by the Irish writer Colm Toybin, who uh, lives in New York now, and his it's a book of uh, literary criticism called New Ways to Kill Your Mother. And <laughs> these are essays on literature, particularly heavy on Irish literature, on Yeats and Beckett. Or so it sounds very Irish already. <laughs> but he sort of ties it together with the theme that um, uh, mothers are really getting the way in literature. And in Jane Austen and Henry James is the reason why so many of the mothers are dead. You're better off from the novelist's point of view dealing with an orphan because you can make, an orphan has to make his or her way in the world or can have things happen to them in a way that if you're protected by a mother, you're not. Uh, but the larger theme of the book is about family relationships. And he reads, interestingly, he reads the first chapter um, in a beautiful, lilting Irish voice. And then another, someone else, a narrator with a beautiful, lilting Irish voice, sort of takes over for him seamlessly for the rest of the book. Can I say that every day when I, I go to work, if I go on the subway, I just download the New York Times and listen to it on the way to work. And then by the time I get to work, I know what stuff I want to, like, follow up on and what I don't. It's a wonderful way to go on the subway. It's funny you should mention that because with your membership, with the, when you sign up using our special promo code, audiblepodcast.com slash GabFest, you will get either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, Boo, Daily Audio Digest, you will also get a free book from Audible when you sign up using that code. So audiblepodcast.com slash GabFest. Time's winged chariot is uh, near everyone this week. Gloria Steinem turned 80. Her glorious life and her, her ongoing energy celebrated by Gail in a New York Times column this, on Sunday. Meanwhile, there's a, a vigorous debate about whether Hillary Clinton is too old to be president. Or really, it's more about whether you're allowed to say anything about that without someone punching you in the face and saying you're being ridiculous, whether we can even have the debate about whether Hillary Clinton is too old to be president. And there's also a kind of, uh, at the other end of the age spectrum, there's a big piece in the New Republic and then some follow-up pieces, including one in Slate, about whether Silicon Valley is ageist against anyone who's over, you know, 24, 20, 25 years old. Gail, why don't we start off? Um, what are the lessons of Gloria Steinem? It's interesting because every decade she will do this, you know, and she, she started when she was 40 and she said to a reporter who said, you don't look like you're 40. She said, this is what 40 looks like. It's just we've been lying about our age so long that nobody really realizes what 40 looks like. And then she had parties, fundraisers for uh, this is what 50 looks like and 60 and so on. And uh, I got her just before she went to Botswana to ride an elephant for her 80th birthday, which seems sort of super to me. People, a few people have pointed out to me that actually what Gloria Steinem looks like is not really what 80 looks like for most people. She looks spectacular. But 
she is sort of a wonderful vision of what the way you would like to go. I mean, she's running around the country. She's doing the same thing she ever did, but she's doing more of them. She's in India working on the women's movement there. She's She still flies coach much of the time, which just boggles my mind completely. She's unstoppable. Every time I see her, she's at some fundraiser for some little library or, or some other thing that just needed her. And she's so patient and giving and interested in other people. We we had her at the Times, uh, we had a party the other night, uh, and um, I invited her to come by. Uh, the columnists give a party once a year for the op-ed folk, and uh, all the young women were sort of standing around her, and she stood there for like an hour talking with them, and just listening to them and encouraging them, and she does that all the time. So I, I really, she really does knock me out. And if I could be that way at 80, I would be really, really happy. <laughs> she came off scale, I thought, as tr- tremendously appealing in that piece, and par- partly because she's so comfortable with who she is mm. at, at this age and is not regretting. But when you think about it, to be a successful revolutionary 40-plus years on, to look back on, on accomplishing essentially what you set out to and arguably much more than they could plausibly have expected and then to be 80 and healthy and look really good. And she not does, be cranky. She is so uncranky. It's amazing. She has a lot to not be cranky about. Well, yeah, like, yeah sort yeah. of. But we have a lot. You know, I, I, It was interesting to me that she came out of that period, which was so exciting and so fruitful, but so aggressive and so much yelling and everybody, you know, factionalizing and and having fights and taking stands and trying to upset everybody else's apple cart. And she came out of it so inclusive. It's just really astonishing. Although I must say, I know many of the women from that period now, most of them are a little bit younger than she is. And a lot of them have mellowed out that way. Robin Morgan, who's you know sort of a great right. author and, and symbol of that period too, said they they kind of get together a lot now and they call each other up and say, "Are you wearing your coat today?" Because it's cold, <laughs> and, and they're very sort of tender with each other, which is really, 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 really cool to me. Old age sort of sorts out people who are really angry about something from people who are merely angry. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and you do get. I do believe as you get older, more like whatever you're like. Yeah. which is terrifying somewhat. Let, let's move to Hillary, who's the older woman who is more at the center of the political debate these days than Gloria Steinem is, perhaps. Is this a debate, Hillary's age, that Democrats actually want to have? Is this something that that they want Republicans to be making a big deal out of? It seems to me it probably is, but I'm interested whether you guys think that. I never think anything is not worth having a debate about, uh, you know, it, it, and you know, Jake was now becoming you know, very deep in Ronald Reagan. I mean, we, we should have thought a little bit about <laughs> Ronald Reagan's age probably before we at least elected him the second time. And, you know, I would argue it was bad <laughs> that Ronald Reagan was slipping clearly in his second term, and that was not a good thing to have around. Um, you know, Hillary, she'll only be, well, 69 when... Uh, when she runs, uh, which is you know younger than John McCain, you know younger than several presidents we've had, but the thing I was thinking about when this all came up that would be so great, but I don't think it's in her character to do it, would be if she started out the campaign by saying, "Look, you know I'm sixty, well, she'd be sixty-eight, and and 
I'm not going to do the crazy campaign. I'm not going to do the one where every day you race to another state so you can just show up there and give, you know, five seconds with people. I'm going to do a lot of that online, and I'm going to try to have a rational campaign that helps to frame issues and discuss things without, you know, trying to make it a marathon to see who faints first, you know. (laughs) If she did that, I think it would be very useful because the campaigns are crazy. They're nuts in this day and age. But won't you just do that without saying it? No, I think it. you'd need to kind of say it in a way. You, you don't wouldn't need to talk about age, perhaps, but you would need to talk about the fact that it's time to think about these campaigns in a different way. But you I, hate this idea. I can tell this already. I so. just think it's a, I think it's a dumb issue, at least in reference to her. I'm not saying it's impossible that someone could be too old to be president, although it has much more to do. I mean, Reagan wasn't too old per se. He had Alzheimer's, you know, and we didn't realize it. He didn't realize it, presumably until some point in the second term. People can get Alzheimer's when they're younger than that. That's true. You know, and people can become infirm or disabled for a whole variety of reasons. And if what you're trying to do is make a prediction about the likelihood that someone's going to remain vigorous enough to be president, Hillary Clinton at 68 or 69 is a, it's a very good bet. I mean, it's just it's not that old anymore. You know, she yeah, she passed out when she was Secretary of State flying a million miles around the world. Being Secretary of State... It is actually, in some ways, much more taxing than being president oh, because awful. of the relentless travel. Wait, but Jake, would you have said this about John McCain? Did you say this about John McCain in 2008? John McCain... I, I didn't think he was too... Well, I mean, I think... With I mean, McCain John McCain's was, health was not as good as Hillary's, probably, but I mean, still. He, had, he had had cancer, you know, and, and, you know, with a high likelihood of coming back. I wouldn't have voted against him for that reason. The thing about McCain is that he actually turned into a cranky old man between his two presidential campaigns. I mean, he was... It was temperamental, and I don't think that's an ageist thing to say because it didn't have to happen to him. He, you know, somehow that happened to him. He became cramped and and narrow-minded, and everything that used to be appealing about him kind of disappeared. You know, be- between the two presidential yeah, elections. I think that sort of had to do a lot with the role he had to play in that second election as opposed to the grand crusader in the little bus of the first election. It's just, it was, just didn't work for him at all. But it is interesting to me that we talk about whether or not Hillary Clinton at, in her late 60s can do this when men are more likely to fade in some way, shape, or form at this time than women are, and yet the question of whether or not you're too old is much more likely to be posited to a woman than to a man. Yeah, and the actuarial tables, her life expectancy is longer than a man's, certainly a lot longer than her husband's. So the GOP, in their planning for this race, certainly are putting forward people who are 20, 25 years younger than she is. I mean, if you think about Bobby Jindal, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. Although Ted Cruz is 45, but he is, he's like 80. Mentally, he's 80. And Christie is only 50, but he because he's overweight, people think of him as he, doesn't, he can't exude healthfulness in the way that would be useful to them. Do you guys think that if it's a Rubio or a Cruz or a Rand Paul or Scott Walker, who are all men in their 40s, that that viga is going to be something – that the GOP is going to be able to capitalize on? Or is is the fact that the GOP basically doesn't have any issues that appeal to young voters going to be more problematic for them? Well, obviously, the issues are more important. But I think also, you know, when you get into a presidential race as opposed to any of the other stuff that we do, suddenly people really do want a a sense of solidity. You know, Obama won the presidency when they had the stock market crash and McCain looked like he had no idea what he was doing and and Obama seemed very calm and cool and collected. And, 
you don't necessarily want somebody who seems all that bounding around and energetic when it comes to the president. You want somebody who can focus. So I, you know, don't think that's, but it, you know, it's a weird life, the life of a president. And you're surrounded by these very young, 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 young people. And you're always, even if you're Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, you, you, you seem very old suddenly because you've got all these 23 year old helpers around you. That's funny. I mean, there are campaigns when this idea of, of kind of youthful vigor and energy and possibly idealism combined to be a real asset, obviously with Obama, before that with JFK. And before that, I don't know, Teddy Roosevelt was maybe the last... Teddy Re- Roosevelt was, I think, still the youngest president ever to become president. He was like 42. And, and he certainly did have that exhausting energy thing going on, you know, that just caused everybody around him to faint. (laughs) So the question is, is there any Republican on the scene now who could really benefit from that? I think it's much harder for a Republican now, partly because the policies are inherently more backward looking. But, um, you know, Rubio, I'm not really seeing it. I mean, you've got to, it also requires a certain measure of intelligence to carry Well, he also, out. he seems very young to me in a not helpful to being yeah. president kind of way. Yeah. I do have to tell you one, can I tell you one really fast story? My Hillary Clinton story, my only good Hillary Clinton story. When the last, in 2008, you know, it's when the election was over, I saw her someplace and she said, you know, the days that you were on the plane were my favorite campaign days, which seems so weird. So I said, you know, what What do you mean? And she said, well, that was the only time there was somebody my age on the plane with me. And she said, nobody knew what Sputnik was on my plane except you. It was, and it is true. You know, you do tend to, the reporters are very young now. Yeah. Everybody else is young. And there you are sitting there remembering Ronald Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, see everyone's eyes so glazing sweet. over. Yeah. <laughs> Just let's close by talking quickly about the the other end of this, the Silicon Valley stories. Did you guys get a chance to look at any of those stories about how how in Silicon Valley, you know, thirty year olds are getting hair implants and and having their skin done because uh, and you know if you're thirty three, you're called a den mother at work if you're a woman. <laughs> yeah, it, st- it struck me. I thought there were some interesting things in the story. The thing about all the thirty year olds getting uh, Botox and facelifts made me think a little bit of the New York recent New York Times story about everyone getting a monocle. I I'm not quite <laughs> yeah. sure the sample size was uh, sufficient. It was anecdote rather than data. But there is look in, in, in Silicon Valley, there is this cult of youth that is taken to an extreme. The idea that you know someone who's over thirty five. I mean, it's the newest version of never trust anyone over 30, right? Uh, it absolutely is. And, and you know, I kept thinking when I was reading that Mark Zuckerberg is going to be 30 soon. <laughs> and then like suddenly, year, yeah, and like all, you know, I, I can't help but think that as, as all of these people who were the great founders get a little bit older, that their vision of like what the appropriate age for being hired is will will somewhat <laughs> evolve as they go along. But it also reminds me of how when the... When stewardesses could not be over 30, you know, it was a very big deal. And the theory was that you needed to be sexually attractive to all the businessmen who were flying. But the real reason was it was so great for the airlines. My Lord, you had nobody stayed long enough to get a pension. Nobody stayed long enough to have a baby. Nobody stayed long enough to have any claims. 
They were so cheap. I mean, everybody loves to hire young people because they cost so much less than everybody else. Yeah. But he made the point in that piece, which I thought was interesting. It was a a point also made by George Packer when he did that big piece on the politics of Silicon Valley and The New Yorker. That was a, a much better piece, I thought. But it was that when you have a bunch of young people trying to solve problems, the problems they end up solving are the problems of young people. So, That's a good point. You know, the apps they invent <laughs> are about, you know, how to how to go to the 99th percentile of the excellence of your social life, how to get, you know, hot pockets delivered in the middle of the night. I mean, they're, they're the, you know, the issues that they are focused on are inevitably the issues of people in their 20s and early 30s, not the issues of people in their families, not the issues of older people, not the big societal issues. But, but Jacob, you're a believer a little bit, at least in the rationality of people as economic actors. Doesn't it suggest that if that's the case, that there is, in fact, a huge opportunity for people who say, you know what, let's put our VC money into healthcare products that are started by 47-year-olds and things around, you know, energy startups or finance startups or transportation startups that are not focused on the 22-year-old market because there's going to be a huge gain. And even if we're not going to get Facebook returns, we'll still get excellent returns. And these are more promising markets in the long run. Right. I mean, efficient market theory, I guess, which I don't really believe in, but says that that should should happen if people are, you know, are rationally prejudiced against older people in startups. There should be some very good startup ideas. That's what that New Republic article was right. focused on. And yeah, I find that persuasive. I mean, I think probably, you know, the, the, the experience in Silicon Valley that young people can be very, very good as founders of companies um, has now turned into this exaggerated prejudice where they don't want to go near anybody who's over 35. So, you know, the uh, people under 35 who would be good at startups are like an undervalued asset right now. And, and you know, and I hope I'm certainly rooting for them. Well, you know, it used to be that anybody that that there was a strong theory that you could not, if you were a mathematician or a physicist, that you were you're, you were dead when you were like 35, that you, you all right. the great discoveries would be made when you were like just beginning. But it, it seems to be evolving, and it seems to me that part of that is just that that math, like computers, is, is one of the areas in which you can do it when you're really, really young. I mean, it's sort of startling how young you can be when you can you know, yeah. have these genius ideas. It doesn't mean you can't get them later, but I think there's just so much focus on the fact that you can do it when you're young that it tends to evolve into this idea that they're the only possible people on the block. Yeah. Some of these things are real, right? I mean, mathematicians and do, do tend to have their big insights when they're young. I think that probably is connected to the Silicon Valley thing. On the other hand, there's certain things that people don't do well until they're older. You know, people don't usually write very good novels before they're in their 30s or older. And, you know, running a company as opposed to founding a startup may be more like writing a novel. You have to have some experience. You have to have some wisdom. You have to understand a little bit more about what, you know, makes people tick and how they're different. All right. Let's move on to our next topic. Nate Silver, speaking of people who are quite young and successful and geniuses at math, launched his much-anticipated new site, 538.com. He left the New York Times, went over to ESPN, and has relaunched and nothing the site has done has earned as much attention as Silver's updated Senate predictions. He wrote that the the polling evidence that he's gathered and put through his magic special Silver data machine, that that data, when massaged by him delicately in macadamia nut oil, suggests that the GOP is likely to take back the Senate. 
by winning at least six seats in November. He's not the first person to say this, not even the first kind of data-focused political analyst to say this, but when he said it, it really threw some Democrats into, into a state. So, Jake, my question is, why does it matter if Silver says this? Well, because he's got a track record, right? So uh, uh, the Democrats who kind of secretly thought he was probably one of them don't have an easy rejoinder that it's biased or it's Fox News or, or something, you know. And they've been playing it both ways, right? I mean, the the, the DSCC has been both arguing that Silver's wrong and sending out fundraising letters saying he might be right, you better give us money, you know. So, I mean, I think in their heart of hearts, they believe he's onto something. There is, the, the data's pretty thin. I mean, they're not doing really extensive polling in Montana and North Dakota. So when you do a meta sample based on that. The, the data is, is not enough to justify a very strong conclusion. But I would like to ask the people arguing with him if they would take an even money bet, because I would certainly make an even money bet that Silver's right, at least at the moment. Yeah, it certainly could be that he's right. I, it, it, the, the problem for Nate Silver right now, which is a problem for, I think, us all in some ways, is that this is a hard period to get people interested in political predictions. You you have to really be right out there and right on the top. And even then, it's not, this is not the prime political period in our cycle right now. And he's sort of opening up, maybe deliberately, it's it's a great period if you're interested in college basketball. (laughs) So maybe this is exactly the moment that he wanted to start out. But you're talking about a Senate races, which are really much harder. Each one of them is their own little individual story about their own little individual place. The candidates haven't been nominated. The candidates haven't been nominated. And some of these, you know, I mean, I I just love Iowa right now. Are they going to, will the Republicans pick the lady who has the ad about castrating pigs in her youth? I mean, I... That would make a difference. I have no how, idea. How could they not? I can't. I can't imagine. I would. I'm praying for this to happen. For gosh sakes! But so there's so many things, and it's so far away. And he would say that I'm sure himself. The polling is very oozy. I mean, this is not a great. Everybody's sort of cranky, and it's not a great time for the president. It's an off season, an off election. I think you're right that you know anybody would you know want to take an even bet right now on it. But the other one was so you know when 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 Nick did the 2008. I mean, it was just. 2000, when was our last election? Twelve. I'm losing it. (laughs) It was 12. Oh, my God, I've forgotten. When he did that, it was, like, just so exciting, and everybody wanted to know, and it was that moment when the entire country is interested in politics. So we'll see. But, Gail, don't you think you just used the collective noun everybody? Isn't the issue for Nate Silver, at least as a journalistic enterprise, is that the everybody is basically people on the left who want to be comforted, and that, in fact— the reason why he was so popular for the New York Times in 2012 and that he was so popular for himself in 2008 is that he was telling Democrats the story they wanted to hear. He turned out to be right because he's a smart guy. But what if the data and the evidence are going to tell Democrats things that they don't want to hear, which is that they're heading for a terrible defeat? Are people still going to turn to him at all? Doesn't, it, doesn't his popularity depend on people wanting to agree with his conclusions? Well, it depends on whether you're talking short-term or long-term. Uh, if he predicts, as we get closer, and you can really make a sensible prediction, and he predicts something that's so close to the mark, which is a disaster for Democrats, but just right on there, once that election is over, Democrats are really going to want to know what he says about the next election. I, you know, it, It's true that you do much prefer hearing good news about whatever it is you want, but 
if he's looking to be a long, long-term brand, he needs to be a brand that's actually correct rather than a brand that, that's delivering good news. I I'd, I'd kind of question whether you can be a brand that does sports and politics in the particular way that he's planning to do it, but that's entirely different question. Here we have another New York Times columnist attacking Nate Silver. That's all you guys are doing. <laughs> That's all you guys are up to. What's it? Well, it's, I, you know, I think it's, a, it's also a moment. He's here right now. It's his first moment. I don't think, I think he was predicting that Paul would have written something like 538 <laughs> posts about him by the election if this kept going, but I suspect that will not be the case. Yeah. I thought Krugman got the better of him because, you know, Nate Silver was in trying to be cute, said all of the data shows that you've only attacked me since I've left the New York Times. You used to like me. And Come on. I mean, you know, <laughs> P- P- Paul Krugman, is, as you know, being a colleague of, of uh, his, you know, has many virtues and many vices. But one of his vices is not being a company man who's going to go out after the defectors, <laughs> the people who've left the organization. I mean, give him credit for honestly disagreeing with Nate Silver. Paul is such but his own person in his own universe that I cannot conceive of the idea of him taking marching orders from anybody, let alone us. I found Silver's response to that so charming. I really thought it was super charming. So for those of you who haven't seen it, Krugman has written a few things critical of Nate Silver since 538 has launched. And Nate Silver wrote a piece crunching the data about Krugman's mentions of Nate Silver's work and showing showing that it had been favorable and has net turned unfavorable and that he was writing a huge amount about 538, and at this rate, he would write 425 items by the end of the year about uh, Silver. But I thought that Silver was, in a way, it was mocking Krugman, but it was also a little bit mocking himself in a way that I found endearing. Well, it was also sort of like, you know, a, a love letter to the boy in the class who I've now noticed is, you know, <laughs> has said something unpleasant or has not picked up something like 27 times over the last 12 hours because I have been observing his every move every bit of the time. I think it's very flattering for Paul, actually. I, I wonder what you think, Jacob. You're an incredibly keen observer of media about the silver mission generally. And let me just lay out my question about it, which is that it seems to me that Silver has this idea that data tells the story. And I just am not sure I believe that. I think that one of the the most powerful heuristics, to use a term that Nate Silver probably uses, for people is an actual story of human about human beings, a, a someone, an actual narrative that has a plot, that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that data abstracted from that doesn't convince people of anything. And that if you want to convince people, persuade people, and interest people in something. The data is very valuable to have. It's good to have the better data, but that ultimately, unless you dress it in a story, people are just not going to listen to it. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if you saw in the New Republic last issue, Leon Weaseltier um, went after Nate Silver um, in another tragic episode of Jew on Jew Violence, but... um, (laughs) It was basically the point was an extreme version of that that you know. This, Wait, this I'm a, sort of, I, Leon and I agree on this. But that, well, <laughs> what Leon was saying, and I sort of agreed with Leon. I think more more or less, which is that you know he he said basically there's this cult of data, which makes people like Nate Silver think that only data has value, and part of that is that Nate Silver said that basically all this punditry in the New York Times ever else is kind of worthless because it's just like what people ate for lunch or what they think. It's not based on data. I don't agree with that view of Nate Silver's at all. I think being better with data and sharing data and being open about data and analyzing data correctly can generate tremendous interest. But, you know, data doesn't tell you what our position should be on the Russians going into Crimea. I mean, it doesn't tell you 
most of what you need to know to be a sentient citizen and participate in public affairs and, and you know, develop a, a set of working hypotheses about what should happen. It's essentially what it does is yield better predictions. And I think the, you know, the 538 model is a little bit, does have a kind of cultish attitude. This sort of data is all you need. People always want to hear the story. This is what, since Bill Clinton, all politicians have learned, is that you have to tell them the story. You can't just tell them that something will yield a better something or another. There's got to be a story involved. I used to, when I started Republics, I used to always start with the precept that the least interesting question is who's going to win. You don't know, and it doesn't add anything. It's just it's just speculation. But what Nate Silver, I think, has sort of done is he's actually made who's going to win a much more interesting question because he's broken it down into parts that people can analyze and discuss. But it's still a pretty limited question, right? Because at the end of the day, it's speculation about something that who's, the outcome of which will be known. And isn't it more interesting to really think about people's ideas and their characters and their personalities and their relationship to history and everything else that we write about as opposed to predicting the future? It is. And when you think about behavior of voters, I mean, everybody who's been out talking to voters during campaigns realizes it's hard to quantify the thoughts in their heads. I mean, it's just very hard to get, you know, they don't behave that way. So it'll be interesting to see, though. I, I think it's fascinating. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are um, tippling this weekend, Jacob Weisberg, what's the one one thing you're going to tell your beautiful wife and beautiful children? Uh, I slightly suspect that somebody's already made this endorsement, but have you seen Borgen? Uh, oh, my Lord, I loved Borgen so much. Have you watched it all? I'm just all in the of it. first yes, season. Yes. But it is by far the best thing about politics I've ever seen on television. It's about the Danish government and this woman who becomes sort of fortuitously prime minister of Denmark. And it's about, you know, Euro coalition politics. It is so compelling. And I've never seen anything else on TV that really portrays the moral complexity of political decision-making the way this show does. But it, almost anything you say about it makes it sound like a boring show. It is such, it's also in Danish. <laughs> it's, in, it's in Danish with English subtitles, and you can only get the DVDs from Amazon. I mean, this will, like, I guarantee that hardly anyone listening to this will get it because it's so hard to get right now. But it's just a great show. Every, everybody I know that has watched it just goes completely wild. And, and we were obsessed. It was just, and we watched all three. And the first year is naturally, like all first years, the best. But all three were just totally riveting. It's, I'm so frustrated because every month or so, you know, whenever, whenever I come to the end of a series, I'm like, okay, next we'll, let's watch Borg and Hanna. And so we, then we sort of hunt around. Can we get it? Can we get it? Can we get it? No, it's nowhere. And I'm not going to buy the DVDs, so. Well, you, send them to, send you when it to me done. when you're done, Jake. There you go. You know, I, I would like to ask just the question very quickly. Why is it there's so much good Danish TV? I don't understand it. There's really a ton of the it. The New Yorker did a great story about it. I can't remember what really? the point was, but they did a really good story maybe a year ago. You should <laughs> oh, go fine. read it. Well, it's the same guy who did The Killing, I think, who's behind Borgen. There's one called Prize The Bridge, yeah. too, which was also sort of a prize in America, which was really good that we watched. There is there is some good structural reason for it, but I, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Gail, what is your chatter? Well, it, since we were one of those couples who saw all of the movies that were nominated for things before the Academy Awards as, you know, obsessive, compulsive people, um, we've been looking for other stuff to see. And the two movies that we've seen over the last couple of weeks that I found absolutely riveting were one was called Omar and the other Bethlehem. They're both about the West Bank. And one was made from a Palestinian perspective and one was made from an Israeli perspective. 
weirdly, they have almost identical endings. It's very strange, but they were so fascinating. And in Omar in particular, you got such a sense of what it's like to live in this particular kind of constricted place and what kind of behavior patterns that creates. I really recommend both of them. Is the political view opposite or is it? No, but that one of the interesting things I found was that in the one that was told from the Palestinian point of view, that, that the sense of Israelis being around on top of you was very intense. The one told from the Israeli point of view, there wasn't that sense. There was yeah. sort of a sense of only when something bad happened did the Israelis kind of come in and intervene and, and do stuff. But both of them were very well made and that, you know, had very sort of touching in some ways, you know, kind of perspectives and, and, and very humane. I, I really, I recommend them both. David, I hope you're not going to make some lowbrow, non-subtitled recommendation. <laughs> My chatter is so awesomely different from your guys. So I, this is, I, I got an email. I got a spammy email from a publicist, and I'm ashamed to say this comes out of it. But I was so interested in it that I went and followed it up. It was from a company that makes coloring books, conservative coloring books, and they were pointing out that the number one coloring book on Amazon was the book about Ted Cruz that there's a Ted Cruz coloring book called Holy Cruz Lord. to the Future. <laughs> and and then I sort of started looking and and the Amazon coloring book chart is fascinating because it's mostly it's sort of like weird craft coloring books, but the number 1 is Cruz, the number 7 is the Tea Party coloring book for children by the same company that made Cruz. Is this Hobby Lobby by any chance or it, am I imagining? It is not. Although you would you would I wish I, I bet they're carried by Hobby Lobby. David, you know what's surprising about that is Ted Cruz has no color. I don't mean in the sense that he doesn't have a lot of personality, but he's he's kind of monochrome. He has black hair. He has he wears like dark blue suits. Like you don't I don't associate any colors with him. Yeah. Unless he's jumping over the rainbow. Well, let me I'll tell you about that in a little bit in a second. The number 15 one, the other political one is the Libertarian Party coloring book, also from the same company. <laughs> you don't have to stay inside the lines. Jacob, you'll like that. Oh, my God, that's right. <laughs> Color wherever you want. Uh, uh, but there's one page which says, Libertarian ideals make businesses successful. And then it has a picture of libertarian business leaders, John Mackey and Peter Thiel. Libertarian ideals make great leaders. And there's Thomas Sowell there. The only liberal coloring book on it is the ABCs of yoga. It was at number 10. <laughs> but the Ted Cruz one is great. The Ted Cruz has these images of Cruz and his family. There's one picture of him and his family. There's a page which is just coloring the Ten Commandments because I guess Cruz fought to get the Ten Commandments. Uh, on what the, color are the Ten Commandments? Gray. <laughs> there's, then there's my favorite one is Ted Cruz is a firm supporter of the Constitution, particularly the Second Amendment. And it's a picture of him holding a shotgun up, wearing hunting gear. It's a, uh, it's a fantastic book. I, is I, there an NRA coloring book in this group? Is there it? was not in the top 15, but maybe there is one. I feel like there's a, there's a missed opportunity for more political coloring books because clearly the, the Amazon charts are they're, uh, winnable. I'd like to tell you about our specials tonight. First, Chef has made several small plates with particular concern to showcase local, organically grown, and biodynamic vegetables. He's prepared a confit of the show page, slate.com slash gabfest, with links to what we talked about today on a bed of smoked hay. This is a vegan dish for $14. Our soup of the day is puree of gabfest at slate.com. The base is chicken broth gently extracted from free-ranging birds, hand-suckled by chef himself, served over email with creme fraiche and shaved asparagus, and that's $13. 
The salad is, of course, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest, a gluten-free celebration of local microgreens and cruel comments about my beard, sprinkled with lardons and served in a basket of John Dickerson's hair. That's $17. There are two large dishes from Chef. The first is our Twitter feed, at SlateGabFest, which is a pair of baby quail drowned slowly and painfully in Armagnac, poached, and then served ice cold. That's $32. Chef likes to shop at the iTunes store in search of the freshest and most unusual ingredients. Today, he found a slight political gab fest in the iTunes store. He fried it in the traditional Hawaiian style, sheathed in a crust of imaginary breadcrumbs, and serves it over wheat berries. Your chef de cuisine tonight is Mike Volo. He's assisted in the kitchen by our intern, Rebecca Cohen. The executive chef at Slate Political Gab Fest is Andy Bowers. For Gail Collins and Jacob Weisberg, bon appetit. I'm David Plotz. John and Emily will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.